This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. It's ten years since our first episode first dropped. And we're celebrating with... Cartes A to Z! Beginning to look a lot like weirdness. Yes, weirdness in July. Weirdness seems to start earlier every year. Especially on Kickstarter, where the weird little elf game from Atlas has everyone in the weirdness spirit. Santa's elves are working hard to finish all the toys in Santa's workshop. But something isn't right. The elves are acting very strangely. Rumor has it a terrible imp has snuck into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. In weird little elf players take turns being Santa who poses a question for the others to answer. The other players are elves, although one is secretly an imp who follows a special rule that could give it away. The first player to accuse the imp correctly three times wins. Weird little elf comes in a cute palm-sized box that looks like a gift wrap present. Perfect as a stocking stuffer. Get your holiday shopping done early. And efficiently. Give one to everyone in your family and buy enough for all your co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. Order one for each of your gamer friends, you know they don't already own it, and keep one for yourself. This fast and easy family party game is the perfect, not boring activity for your next holiday gathering. Playable with practically any group, any size, any age. A light social deduction game where the imp is a hidden role that non-gamers and even young kids can handle with funny physical tells like scratch your nose and cross your eyes. Weird Little Elf is on Kickstarter from July 12th until August 11th. Learn more at atlas-games.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. So hey everybody, this is episode 508 of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and it's a big deal, and you may be wondering, 508, why do we care about that? We had 500, we had the lightning round! Lightning, lightning round! round. Uh, but, but what's the big deal here? Well, the big deal here is that this is the episode that will drop closest to August 2nd, and on August 2nd, 2012, was when our first episode dropped. So this is actually our true chronological a 10th anniversary of the show. And so I thought it's a big deal. We should celebrate twice. And rather than do another lightning round, I thought we would uh, change up the format and go for an A to Z of Cartus. And so we're going to run through all of the sort of uh, basic things about the show and kind of in so doing, give you a behind the scenes look uh, at our mythos and mythology and uh, possibly even a look ahead. So Ken, draw into your beautiful a shiny box full of letters, and tell us what A stands for. A is for Archaeology Hut. So the Archaeology Hut is, I, I would say, one of our third-tier huts. Yeah, it's not a, it's a hut that was once grand, but apparently it was sacked and <laughs> yes, uh, set again, on the fire. Yes, got into it. So it's one of those ones that I think most, that I surprised how few of them there are when I looked at it. And it's one of the ones that I, we mostly kind of respond to questions for. And uh, maybe I should be sitting on top of archaeology news, and whenever there's a new thing uh, coming up, uh, I should jump on it and, and put uh, this one in. But like a, a, a number of the huts, it comes up less frequently. I never go, oh, it's about time for an archaeology hut. And about 10 years has passed. And you wouldn't think necessarily much is different in archaeology, but actually there's been a lot happened in archaeology over the last 10 years in that LIDAR is now a thing and we're discovering with electronic 
ground sensing uh, all sorts of uh, civilizations and sites that we didn't know about before, particularly in South America. Yeah, a lot of that began with satellite tomography that began in the 80s, that when you began the first bunch of open source or commercially available satellite tomography, they started noticing things. That's how they found Irem of the Pillars, or Ubar, as it is known in history, in uh, Oman. They noticed, hey, there's this weird regular spot in southern Arabia. Maybe it's a thing. And sure enough, it turned out to have been an old frankincense trading post with a lot of pillars. And was it Irem? Who can say? Was it Ubar? Also, who can say? Was it neat? Absolutely. And it's only gotten more so. Google Earth uh, has been spawning even amateur. Even people who don't want to splash out for a real satellite can find alignments and and legitimate uh, anomalies in Google Earth that are not just pareidolia that turn out to be real things. As you say, as we're going into the jungles, you know, in the 80s, you could find stuff in the desert. Now we can find stuff in the jungle. And then finally, uh, what we've also got is we're seeing an acceleration of something that I guess began in the, you know, 19-teens, but is local archaeology that is being driven by the local academic institutions of the area. So, for a long old time, if you wanted something archaeologized, you had to wait for an American or a Frenchman or some kind of European to get around to it. But and, now, and come and take a bunch of that stuff home and, and take half of it back to their own museum. But now, you know, Peru and Vietnam and lots of other countries that are relatively rich in ruins are also becoming relatively rich in archaeologists, and they don't need to wait for other people uh, to come and look at stuff. Now, the downside, of course, is that you sometimes get perhaps over-enthusiastically nationalist interpretations of what you found. But guess what? When Americans and British people were digging it up, you got trying to jam it into the Bible. So there's always something with archaeologists. They're always, you know, they keep an eye on them. That's, I guess, our advice. Yes. Cultural projection uh, has not changed. Next, we come to B is for bookshelf. Uh, this, of course, is the Ken's Bookshelf segment. And uh, this is part of the uh, origin of the uh, show, which will be telling in fragmented order due to, to the alphabetical conceit. But <laughs> this is one of the things that made me think that the show would be uh, very interesting and, and reach a very specific audience of <laughs> people because you would think it would be very boring to see someone go through just a stack of books that they bought, unless it's Ken and it's Ken's stack of books. And they are up the alley of uh, those of us who are into gaming, gaming culture, and all of the occultism and weirdness and history that uh, surrounds that. And indeed, uh, that was in an early uh, episode and has been a staple of the show ever since. And people continue to get excited about it and missed it when uh, COVID was preventing you from yes. getting a book. So. They, they missed it almost as much as I missed it, in fact. It is gratifying. We do get, even now, I get people who ping me on, on various medias and say, I heard your segment. I have this book. I'm going to buy that book. Look what you've done. You've cost me the rent money again. And I'm always very proud of that. I feel like, you know, part of my job in this business is not necessarily to plunge new frontiers of game design. I leave that to Robin, but to plunge new frontiers of weird stuff you could put in your games. And I think on that metric, I'm doing at least as good a job as other designers are. So that's what the bookshelf is for. Certainly, I tell the IRS that's what the bookshelf is for, and and they believe me so far. But it's actually correct. It's actually so, correct. So that, there you go. That does help. They can listen to the show if they don't believe you. Yeah, yeah. Take that, IRS. C is for consulting occultist. So consulting occultist, of course, is one of the core segments of the show. 
It's uh, one of the ones that there's a rotation of segments that usually caps the end of the show. And aside from uh, Gaming Hut, which is the one that we almost invariably start with, there's uh, Consulting Occultist, Elliptony Hut, and uh, also Ken's Time Machine are the three that I try to always end with. And what we've learned, I guess, Ken, about uh, the occult over the last 10 years is that just as Conspiracy Corner has moved from the fringes closer and closer to things on the front page of the news. gets harder and harder to tell from ripped from the headlines news. Yes, that uh, we're in in danger of of big swaths of uh, the world turning into burned-over districts as the particular ideation that goes with uh, occultism, the desire to uh, create a new reality, often apocalyptic one, it keeps coming back, and it looks like it's coming back right now. It's as though there is some sort of ongoing process of technological and cultural change that people have to explain to themselves somehow, often in dramatic ways. Wild. Who would have seen that coming except literally everybody? Yes, it's wherever there's disruption, there's someone looking for a witch who did it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every now and again, they find one. And that's the, the funnest part, I guess. Yeah, the consulting occultist is, you know, like any of our huts, it can be turned to danger and, and badness. But we generally try and keep on the bright side. Occultists... You know, you, you, you can go out and say they're all charlatans, they're all scammers, they're all terrible people, but a lot of them are just folks who had a, you know, neurological event at some point, and by God, they wanted to write about it afterwards. Or some of them are, as I said, just trying, you know, basically, you make fun of the cargo cult, the people who are like, well, everything's screwed, we have to build a airfield out of palm trees. Well, that's basically what everyone is doing all the time. Something happens. You're building an airfield out of palm trees. You're just doing it with, you know, books about uh, Zeta Reticulans or, or whatever. And that's just the way. Yes. Everybody's religion was was an occult belief uh, first. D is for dragon meat, which can is, is also crucial to the uh, origin of our show. Right. It's in many ways, it's where we began, uh, not where we began. Robin and I began at Gen Con, as is suitable. But uh, dragon meat is where, you know, we had that exact perfect combination of solidarity, indolence, and piles of books that caused us to, you know, I think begin a formalized tradition of just Ken and Robin by play that Robin then said, this should be bottled and provided to the world instead of hoarded for myself. Is that a, a fair estimation? Right. Uh, and this was the, we'll, we'll get into this a bit more in O. Yeah. And that is sort of the, our activity around Dragon Meat. But Dragon Meat itself is the reason uh, and that's a show that's held in London in uh, very late November or very early December each year. And it's a one-day event. And it's the one that we've mostly been at uh, since around the time that the show began. And is uh, sort of, uh, because it's a smaller show, you know, we're one of six seminars they have. And we kind of feel it's our little show away from the big show that is Gen Con. One of our hometown shows, if you will. Yes. And uh, maybe... I don't even say, but I, I look forward to whenever I can back, get back to Dragon Meat, it will be a, a joyous event. E is for elliptony, and elliptony is my word. I made it. We needed a word that meant all the stuff we're going to talk about in the elliptony hut, basically. <laughs> yes, and, that, and that's not a tautology, folks. That, no. The tautologies go in the tautology hut. Right. That, yeah, the tautologies go in the tautology hut where tautologies go. It's near the redundance hut, but it's not the same one. Yeah, my shelves in my office, they contain the whole matter of stuff that you use to nerd trope things. They contain, 
you know, conspiracy theory. They contain UFOs. They contain magic. They contain ghost sightings and fairies and folklore and cryptids and anything that's in Fortean times. And, you know, Fortiana is close, but Fortiana tends to shy away from, you know, cults and new religious phenomena and boring traditional monsters like vampires. Whereas, of course, we welcome all monsters and weirdnesses under the realm of elliptony. Yeah, sort of more what's in the Fortean times than what is in Charles Fort. Right, yeah. And the elliptony uh, hut takes its name from the ellipton, which is either a particle or a ray. I guess, like Newton, we don't know. And it was explained to us by radical far left to far right horseshoe theory in person, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, the late Vladimir Zhirinovsky, Russian Duma member who threatened that the West had better step back in Yugoslavia or else Russia would unleash their Elipton weapon. And at that point, I thought, Elipton, that's great. That could be anything. And I was like, what's the field that Elipton, is it Eleptonics? And I thought, no, that's that would just narrow it down to crank science. That's the applied science. That's the applied science. What we need is the whole field, and the whole field is elliptony. And I uh, coined that term in my live journal, speaking of Russian experiments that didn't work out. And and I I love the word. I, it, it suits. It's it's bigger than all of the words that you think you're going to use. It's bigger than Fortiana. It's bigger than occultism. It's better than woo, which I guess is the other version of elliptony. I'm very happy with it. And, of course, we have the most ill-defined of huts, the Elliptony Hut, as Robin puts it, even though technically the conspiracy corner is a corner of the Elliptony Hut a little bit. I feel the folklore hut maybe gets a little nose in under the Elliptony Hut. The Elliptony Hut, it's a vast, it's a big tent. It's, it's very boundarylessness. also means that it, it uh, sits on other huts and takes over their shtick. Right. Uh, which is why it gets to be one of the sort of three core anchor show enders. F is for F20. This is a term that I made up yep. because we needed it. Absolutely. And I feel that this is the, of the terms that I made up that have actually, you know, achieved use. This is the one that started on the show. Mm-hmm. And the idea is we need a term to describe not only D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, of course, mm-hmm. and not only things that were available under various of its OGLs, uh, the biggest and most supported of which were the, uh, the D20 OGL from uh, corresponding to third edition, but we also need a term for games that sort of spiritually relate either in their use of sort of the standard, you know, Gary Gygax sized combo of Tolkien and Howard, uh, or, you know, are all part of that same tradition. We needed a, a one term that would umbrella all of them. Uh, and F20 is it. And of course we refer to it because, you know, whenever you think, that D&D is down for the count and kind of fading, it comes back and becomes the big dog again uh, and has done so uh, yet another time, uh, this time uh, due to the power of streaming. And it's still the game that the most role players want to play and uh, the one where uh, streamers feel they can uh, show off their stuff best. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the first mover. It's the originator of the space. And, you know, it has kept itself relevant, which is not as easy necessarily in the cultural space. If you think back, you know, there's not a lot of things that were made in 1974 that are recognizably still around and, you know, driving pop culture in a way. It's almost more like a, a restaurant brand or a or a personal consumer brand than it is a cultural thing, right? I mean, it's, you know, Fleetwood Mac would love to be as culturally relevant as uh, Dungeons and Dragons is right now. Right. And it's not just the fact that it's a brand that has been around forever and is still in people's brains, but there's something about the play experience 
that came out of Gary and Dave's games that is still strong, still permeates all sorts of other games, and still keeps people coming back for more in a way that is hard to define except to say F20. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. G is for Gen Con. If you don't know what Gen Con is, perhaps you are listening to the wrong podcast. I mean, you're not. You should be listening to this podcast. But, Robin, you wrote a whole book about Gen Con, for gosh sakes, a a beautiful oral history. Yeah, I did the oral history of 40 years of Gen Con, and it's sort of still been our locus that we return to every year. And it's interesting to see now that gaming is getting big enough that it's fragmenting that, you know, you don't see everybody who's everybody at Gen Con every year because people are going off into their own uh, separate kind of siloed convention scenes. And Gen Con is getting harder and more expensive to get to. And in the days of, you know, the late pandemic or early post-pandemic, wherever the heck we are, (laughs) you know, not everybody's still ready for that size of a big crowd. This episode, in fact, will drop during Gen Con. And very sadly, if you're looking for me, um, I'm not there because... I've had a uh, serious family emergency. I've had to cancel my flight and uh, stay home to take care of that. And uh, like I said, I don't even want to predict when the next con that I get to go to will be because I'm starting to feel like I, I'm jinxing it or something. You're the you're the uh, flying Dutchman. You're not the flying Dutchman, Robin. You're a you're a Canadian by God, and you should be proud of that. Also, yeah, I'll be at Gen Con. As I said, I think the Canon Robin story began at Gen Con in the sense that. I was entirely unauthorized presence at a industry function, Gen Con in the early, late 90s, I guess, at some point, maybe early 90s. And uh, I met Robin Laws, and I knew that his last chance brains for Over the Edge was my favorite scenario, maybe, not my favorite of all time, but certainly my favorite recent one. And I approached him, and it turns out when you approach a writer and you tell them how great their work is, 
Often, they respond well. It gets you off on the right foot. It does. And uh, Robin and I got off on the right foot, and at, at some point, I earned cred and was invited to Robin's uh, little circle of young Turks who nodded sagely. And as far as I'm aware, Robin, we're still young Turks who nod sagely. I, I look around, we're, we still seem like uh, spring chickens, just as we did yep. in 1990. <clears throat> yeah, that's been true ever since I took down all the mirrors in the house. Right. H is for History Hut. History Hut is maybe sort of a second tier uh, segment. And it's often one where I will take things that people want to hear about and they sort of kind of will pitch it as a Ken's time machine without, you know, an alternate timeline being key to it. And so if we're going to talk about history and just have Ken leave it where it is, uh, History Hut is the big old catch-all where, where that happens. Yeah, History Hut, you could say, is sort of the, the big box of Legos for my start with Earth thing that I always say. Anything you're looking for in a game it's it's already happened somewhere, pretty much. Maybe it didn't happen because vampires are Cthulhu, but the thing happened, and you can dig around in that box of Legos forever, and even if you don't find what you're looking for, you're going to find something equally cool, or even cooler, and that's sort of the, the spirit of the History Hut, is to dig around in that box of Legos and show you some of the shiniest and, and best ones. I is for Iconic Hero, and the Iconic Hero, Robin, speaking of things you came up with, I feel like even more than F20, the iconic hero is a is a concept that needed to be drilled into people's heads. I hope it's being done successfully, but tell us about it, Robin. Yeah, so this starts with uh, Hamlet's hit points, which sprang out of my desire to analyze uh, Hamlet as what if it was a role-playing game and what would its structure be? And it developed into the beat analysis system, uh, which is, you know, how do moments within narrative work? Because traditional scholarship tends to focus, first of all, primarily on theme uh, secondarily on style, and thirdly, a distant third, on structure. Um, structure, of course, is the thing that is most useful to writers as opposed to academics who are studying texts in a, a literary forum, but even more so in role-playing. We're not so much in control of the structure. We are in control of the moment-to-moment. -moment. Uh, from that, however, sprang an understanding of how the narratives that we tend to base our stories on uh, feature a different sort of character than is ever talked about in literary criticism. The character who doesn't go through an arc isn't transformed from one stage to another, but rather changes the world back to a state of normalcy by taking action that reflects their iconic ethos. And so, of course, these are the serialized characters. These are Sherlock Holmes, the Hulk, Captain Kirk, people whose uh, stories are meant to recur or are meant to fit into multiple stories. Mm -hmm. And I would love if this understanding would continue to percolate because mm -hmm. you continue to see, I think, a lot of today's particularly movie and TV treatment of uh, this sort of character is kind of off because they've taken this idea of the character arc, which is applicable to some characters, especially the ones from dramatic uh, or literary fiction, uh, but is not applicable to others. And that you have the weird thing where Batman is always deciding to be Batman or deciding not to be Batman and then realizing to be Batman again, instead of just solving the mystery with the frickin' Riddler. Instead of just being Batman. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. It allows you to sort of restore uh, the romance, broadly termed, to its rightful place at the side of the novel, not as a, a bad version of the novel, but as a thing doing something separate from novel. It's a term that uh, that that we needed, and I'm glad you came up with it. And anyone who's listening to this in or around a Hollywood writer's room, you know, slip a couple of copies of Hamlet's hit points into the pile and see what happens. 
J is for Jane Jacobs. She, of course, was the uh, patron saint of urbanism and is my way of having a word that starts with, with a, a letter I didn't have anything else for <laughs> to allow us to talk about psychogeography and architecture. Uh, Ken, one of the things that we have in common is that your dad was an architect. Uh, my dad, uh, when he was working, was a draftsman. So uh, I'm a labor, your management. I like to say I'm art in your craft, Robin. I don't like to put it in. <laughs> yeah, just, just say that to any architect. Oh, guess where I heard it. <laughs> yeah. But the sense of place or the sense of interacting with a place that is part of psychogeography is part of, uh, you know, any exciting role-playing world. And uh, again, by exploring our world and seeing the strange nooks and crannies and complexities uh, that you see just walking around a city, you can find a springboard for all manner of adventure. Yeah, the um, architecture uh, I was raised to believe is the queen of the arts. And I moved to Chicago where... That bald statement is reified around me every day. Robin and I, you know, share a lot of aesthetics. And one of the fun things about our aesthetic views is that they are almost exactly overlappy enough that we can agree about stuff, but they're not quite so overlappy that it's boring. It's and, an intersection, as it were. Yeah, a big old oval in our Venn diagram. And I think in architecture, it may be a little closer to unitary than in, you know, cinema or the plastic arts or some of the other arts. But um, we both recognize that without architecture, well, for example, cinema would uh, would be impossible because you couldn't project it against anything and you'd get rained on. K is for the KL-43 encryption device. Speaking of things that we needed to come up with things to start with, I don't think there's anything really about this podcast that begins with K that I can think of. Um, that is our door into the Tradecraft Hut, our guarded and fingerprint uh, scanned door. Uh, and it's also a cipher device that was uh, used by the, uh, NATO and America in the 80s. It is perhaps most famous as the device that Oliver North and his little uh, ring of hoodlums used to send messages back and forth in Ray, the uh, Iran-Contra uh, scandal. And I think at some point it has been superseded by something a little more digital than that. Um, I, I, it, I think that was an early computer thing, but I think it used basically like flash coded circuits. I don't think it was a proper tiny microcomputer. Maybe I'm wrong, Robin. Yeah, it, was, it was actually all more like, you know, an eighties version of the Boite Noir, the uh, weird communications device that the characters in Yellow King, the wars uh, used to communicate with each other. Yep. So yeah, trade craft hut is uh, one of the sort of second tier segments that I try, uh, go out of my way to go. Oh, we haven't had a trade craft hut in a while often comes in the, the second slot. And uh, there's certainly uh, no shortage of Tradecraft Hut stories because uh, they can both be historical or uh, talk about the present day because uh, the spying has never let up. But whenever uh, conflicts heat up, uh, the role of uh, espionage and intelligence uh, becomes all the more important. L is for Lovecraftian. And uh, Lovecraftian things go way beyond H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, but certainly we talk about uh, his mythos a lot on the show because Trail of Cthulhu is one of the core games that we both work on. And uh, it's one of the things that people most like to nerd trope. Uh, so very often when people spot a cool thing in the news or something weird going on, explicitly the question will be, and how does this relate to the mythos? How is this Lovecraftian? And Ken, of course, you've published a, a number of uh, books about 
Lovecraft and his works. Yeah, the Tour to Lovecraft, uh, the Tales, and Tour to Lovecraft, the Destinations. Destinations maybe a little more than Tales. My sort of grown-up attempt to approach Lovecraft uh, seriously as a writer and what is he writing about. The field of Lovecraft studies has been a lot about Lovecraft and uh, less about the writing for some reason. And I feel like there's a bit of a, a balance needs to be. It's, if, if Shakespeare has no idea how many favors he did us by leaving 19 pieces of his own handwriting and nothing else, Lovecraft having given us, you know, 20,000 letters to dig through has sort of, you know, buried his uh, stories uh, effectively among them. The other thing about Lovecraft, as you said, Robin, is that he's sort of, while he is core and key to the explosion of cosmic horror and to the science fictionization of the Gothic. He is far from the only figure within a sort of uh, Lovecraftian stream in popular culture. And it go, you could, you know, trace it all the way back to Seneca if you want, or um, all the way forward into your Thomas Ligotti's and your true detectives and whatnot. Lots of stuff that appeals to that by and large, I guess Schopenhauer would be the, the philosophical, uh, center of it, but that sort of, well, turns out everything's screwed. What do we do now? Attitude that, you know, one hesitates to say that a scientific understanding would bear it out, but it's harder and harder to disprove some days. And that I think is why for all of his goofy flaws, our boy Howard Lovecraft remains at the center of the discourse and his mythos uh, remains on our minds. Right. Because the thing about flawed people who make art is often they make art that is bigger and more memorable and uh, not without referring to uh, their flaws. In this case, of course, the racism and anti-Semitism that you always have to mention. Uh, the uh, world of imagination uh, that he portrays, I think, particularly appeals to the same kind of people who are outsiders and who are used to being othered themselves. Yeah. I, I think in an essay for uh, Cthulhu Rotica, if you're, if you're a Ken Hyde completist, track that down. I talked about the sort of degree to which the Lovecraftian mythos, because it builds a secret history and because its secret history is explicitly coded as forbidden, it turns out to appeal to a lot of the kind of countercultural people and movements that H.P. Lovecraft himself would want nothing to do with. So, you know, heavy metal and comics and um, uh, erotica, obviously, and lots of other areas burgeon on and profit from and excitedly embrace the Lovecraft mythos. And I think that, you know, alterity is another reason that it, it keeps going, because it turns out that when uh, what you're being served is is kind of slop, you, you, you want literally anything to spice it. And it doesn't matter if it's octopus flavor. M is for maps. Robin, that's interesting that you would call out the classic 90s banger by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs uh, in this. I mean, it's a great song, but is is there a reason that you particularly... Oh, I get it. It's the cartography hut. Speaking of huts that perhaps could use a little more love. Yes. Profanity Software is one of the uh, sponsors of the show and uh, uh, sort of asked us to talk about maps, but it doesn't come up all that much because it falls into the category of us talking about something visual, yeah. uh, which doesn't super suit the podcast medium. So often we will wind up talking about map making or something around a map, but occasionally we will put up a picture of a map and talk about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we will again. I mean, if uh, people feel like they need more maps, that's one of the huts that's always open and welcome for questions and suggestions. Right. And of course, the map is uh, essential to many uh, role-playing games and traditions. Uh, F20 
uh, most notably. And I uh, got my bachelor's degree in cartography, so it's it's nice to flex those old muscles every now and again. But speaking of a game that goes well with maps but isn't uh, D&D, and is for Knights Black Agents, Ken, of your various games, this is probably the one that we talk about uh, most on the show. It is, and I think that's because it sort of spreads itself into other huts. It's a tradecraft hut game. It's a folklore hut game. It's uh, spies versus vampires. And also, I think of the games that I've done, it's one of the ones that I'm happiest with in the sense that it is most like the game that was in my head when I was writing it. You know, any work of art is, you know, a compromise, but I I feel like I had to compromise less on Nice Black Agents, and I, I still... I still love to look about it. I still love to hear about it. And it still turns out to be relevant because it's also about, guess what, Robin? Shadowy figures that don't mean us well operating secretly in the world. Hmm. I wonder if those exist, he said, in Chinese government or, you know, NSA or pick your shadowy figure operating in the world. The, the GRU. The GRU. So many, so many possibilities. And yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it was just one of those things that was, like a 30 second revelation to me. I'm standing on the train platform in Chicago and waiting for the train at, you know, uh, midnight. And I thought, well, this is, this is vampire weather. Vampires are coming out. And I thought, well, who would hunt a vampire? And I said, well, you'd, you'd send Jason Bourne after the vampire. You'd send seal team six. And then I thought there's no vampire hunting game right now. The Buffy game is sort of away. There's, you know, we're between Hunter incarnations at white wolf. Maybe I should do a vampire hunting game. Maybe I should do it for Gumshoe. And literally, by the time the train came, I basically conceptualized the the core notion of Jason Bourne versus vampires as the Knights Black Agent structure, and then sold it sold the idea to Simon. Uh, he took me to the oldest pub in London and sat me down very seriously and looked at me and said, "Who do you play? Tell me who the characters are." And I sort of laid out, you know, the the high concept and the structure. And by the end of our drinks, he said, yes, if you can write that, I will publish it. So that was the Knights Black Agent story. And it's done pretty well, I think, uh, for Pelgrane. It spawned the Dracula dossier, which if I'm leaving anything to my art form, I'm leaving that. It is my magnum opus, along with uh, Gareth Hanrahan, of course, who put more of the magnum and more of the opus into it than I did. And uh, also, I think it got me my job as the lead designer for Vampire the Masquerade, which is its own fun irony. And it's uh, one that I enjoy even now. The hunters are always getting hired by the vampires. That's how it's, that works. That's how it and works. I think Knights Black Agents is one of those games that is also lends itself to lots of topics for the show. So, for example, Hill Folk is something I'm extraordinarily uh, proud of. I think it's uh, extremely innovative. It won the Diana Jones Award, but it also doesn't really lend itself because it, its play style is so self-contained. Uh, it is less GM-driven, so it requires less advice. And it has a baseline setting, but there's many other settings. So it doesn't lend itself to constant tie-ins to segments the way that uh, Knights Black Agents. And also the, the central conceit of the drama system is, you know, drama, do that. And there's only so many times we can say, well, that certainly was drama. Although, although that's not, I, that, that's not even the premise. It's like, you don't know drama. Yeah. But here's <laughs> but, a structure that will have you doing it anyway. Yeah. That, that, that will map to drama. Yes. But again, you know, you and I can't watch like a, a really great, you know, drama and then say that would make a great drama system thing yeah. because the, the game runs itself. So yeah. it doesn't require a lot of uh, additional tips. It doesn't need a podcast of its own, except an actual play podcast. Someone start one. 
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Gain standing to remind us of the hut we forgot to mention by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Jason Fritz. Neil Kaplan. Oren Gashuri. Paul and Cleo Bush. And Robbie Carlton. O is for origin story. The origin story of this podcast, not all origin stories, most of which are, as I think, Robin, you noted, are pointless for iconic heroes. But Robin, you and I, we're not iconic heroes. We're dramatic heroes. We have an arc. Don't we? Or do we? We do the same thing every week, Ken. We're iconic. We're iconic. Well, good for us. So the genesis of the show was, uh, as as previously alluded to, hanging around at uh, Simon's house around Dragon Meat and just talking and chatting. And we even had sort of, so Ken had his pile of books. We got into a discussion of, you know, Ken, what would you do uh, if you had a time machine to fix the U.S. healthcare system? And I realized that just listening to us talk would be, hey, this would be a kind of fun show. If I wasn't having this conversation right now, I would enjoy listening to it. <laughs> and I bet others will as well. And it was just sprang out of our interaction at Simon's table. Then I came up with the idea. I pitched it to him a year before. So this would have been, I guess, in 2011. Would have been 2011. Or maybe it was even in 2010. I initially pitched it to him, and he was sort of cool on the idea. It was a, a maybe. And then I kept at him, and that uh, at one Gen Con, I finally did convince him with the idea that we had a Kickstarter coming, and this would be great for that, and it was. And that's what started the, the ball rolling to finally have our episodes beginning in August uh, 2012. And we've kind of hit the structure early on. My ideas, in addition to just, hey, have this conversation we're having be a podcast, was also, let's not have it be a typical conversation podcast, mm -hmm. because uh, a lot of uh, gaming podcasts, uh, I think, could use uh, with a little uh, tuning. And you can be rambly kind of easily, and having short little segments that are self-contained and have specific topics, I think went a long way to kind of yeah. uh, breaking through the ramble bramble. I, I think, I think no matter how much people like us, they probably like us to keep it tight more than they would just like us to babble for an hour about something. I mean, there are exceptions. I, I feel like if you knew or were influenced by Greg Stafford, our hour on Greg was pretty great, but you know, even then we sort of broke it up into bits. It wasn't just, aimless. It was like, we'll talk about this game. We'll talk about this game. We'll talk about your life with him. We'll talk about my life with him. And that sort of internal structure and the rhythm of it is, I think, a, a big part of why this podcast is still around in 10 years and why it, you know, won various awards. Not that we care about such things, Robin. We're in it for the art right. and for the and for the listener. Because the idea is if there's a segment that doesn't interest you, there'll be another one coming. And yep. so often if we have something that does require more in-depth, like the Horror 101, we will turn that into a series. 
have that over many episodes. And I think people really also enjoy the series as well and possibly enjoy them more than if it was all just mushed into a couple of episodes. P is for premise rejection. Ken, you and I get questions. We put them on the show. We put them in Ask Ken and Robin. We put them in virtually any other segment. But sometimes, Ken, as part of informing the entire audience, we have to sort of give our take on the situation. Often the easiest one is to gently and lovingly reject a premise. Yeah. I I think premise rejection began as your diagnosis of unproductive play, and then we realized we were doing it on the show. I think that's sort of the order it, it happened in. And, and yes, became... well, if only people had told us our characters were on the plane to begin with, that there would be no premise rejection. Right, exactly. Uh, it, it would be much simpler. And so, I guess, if I may reject the premise of this letter, I would say that we have the premise rejection of the questions, which is, as you say, good and educational and loving, and there is premise rejection of the term, which pretty much, and now that it's been codified in the hallowed pages of Die by uh, Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hans, wonderful comic book, as the characters refusing to go on the adventure, I, I feel like, Robin, I, I kind of have to reject the premise of this letter. Q is for questions for Ken and Robin. Robin? So every week when I'm putting together the script for next week's episode, I... Well, first of all, have a list of things that strike me as interesting to talk about that are just topics that are uh, engineered by myself, because, of course, we have thousands of listeners, I think somewhere around 25,000 listeners, and up to four of them get to pose <laughs> a question in any episode. And we're sort of at a point where we have a lot of frequent questioners. Some, sometimes we luck into someone, uh, like two or three people asking the same question. So yes, and, and that's, that's one way to get your question answered fast, is to have the same question as other people. Often <laughs> that happens when we do a magician's force and make you take the seven of diamonds from our hand and suggest that we might talk about something if you ask us. So my criteria, first of all, are a balance of topics in each episode. The aforementioned sort of uh, structure where we most need Gaming Hut questions because we have Gaming Hut in nearly every segment. And then sort of the big three that are the the anchor ones that, they, that show up at the end of the episode. And then after that, the test is how recently have we answered a question from this particular person? And also sometimes questions will require both of us to do homework that we're unlikely to both do. Uh, <laughs> and so if it's something like you know, read this book or watch this TV series that only one of you have watched or none of you watch. That's going to wait until both of us read something. So anything that requires, you know, many, many hours of, of research is, is going to slowly sink to the bottom of, of the thing. And the other one is just like, I will look at a question. And if I think I don't have seven minutes on this, in fact, I don't even have two minutes so that Ken can do 13. I will wait for you to ask another question that I can see myself saying something interesting about. And I'm sure no one wants me to dutifully pick questions that I, you know, am indifferent to or that I think that we can't do 15 minutes on. No, we you know, we, we certainly don't want to be answering questions out of uh, rote responsibility because then it becomes rote. You want us excited and thrilled by your question. You don't want us saying, uh, all right, scale mail or whatever. R is for role-playing games. This, of course, is the whole point of everything. Most <laughs> of the other segments, with the uh, usual exception of Food Hut, revolve around role-playing games in some way, or we'll try to find scenario hooks and so forth. Presumably, everyone here knows what a role-playing game is, even if you just listen to the other segments because you're married to us or something. So let's talk <laughs> about the state of role-playing games between 2012 and 2022, and particularly now, 
So even even in 2012, it seems to me that where we're at now was relatively solidified. We already had Kickstarter. We had the profusion of story games and arguably a second or third wave even of those. We had the, the trad revival keeps coming along every time D&D comes and revives itself. And I guess the thing that's new right now is that the growth of the audience through streaming, through turning the interactive medium into a passive one and then getting people interactive about it and playing their own games has now hit a point where we've been hunkered down for several years. People are slowly re-entering in-person play and uh, conventions, and it'll be interesting to see what this sort of interior cloistered period, what effect it has when we break out of all of that now. Yeah, I think the, like you say, uh, in 2012, we were saying, well, Surely the story game revolution has to end. We, we must be in the final, uh, the, the Titian era crest of this renaissance. That, of course, was not true. We are, if anything, you know, we're now drowning in story games. In 2012, I probably could have maintained a passing familiarity with every great story game designer. I don't have that now. I am morally certain I probably, you know, maybe 30% of the field is known to me. In, in terms of the absolute best. And a lot of it is out there playing for audiences that, that I don't even know exist necessarily. And then the other thing that I think really is a genuine change from 2012 is the explosion of games from non Anglophone countries that are really finding roots in American and uh, other Anglophone audiences. A little bit of that was maybe present as French games were uh, being translated, but Sweden, for example, Free League has very much rewritten our, our script about, you know, what Sweden means to role playing games. And I knew more than many people in 2012 about Sweden, but it's, it's gotten much bigger and, and much more influential. Southeast Asia, where uh, Nibcard that just won the uh, Diana Jones award is just a tip of the iceberg that's coming up out of uh, the African d- design scene. Uh, India has got a, a game design scene. Korea obviously has a giant one. We're just seeing more and more and more of this global community of game designers, and they're beginning to reach out and make connections across, you know, the oceans, across boundaries. And so you get a, a, a real connector, a real genius like Eric Lang, and he's probably wired into game design on five continents now. You know, I'm lucky to be wired into, you know, game design on two myself, but the degree to which you can now explore this art form from other backgrounds, other national and cultural backgrounds. I think that's the big change from 2012. We could sort of see it happening, but it's just getting even bigger. And we're still in the early stages of that. I feel like if we're still here in 2032 doing this show, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be quaint how little we knew now. And we know so much more now than we knew in 2012. I think that's the, the, the biggest change. Although, as you say, the sort of structural groundwork for that crowdfunding, you know, itch.io and uh, drive through and other electronic things. And then, of course, virtual tabletop is the other thing that I think really blew up. It existed in 2012. But for some reason, we all had to play on virtual tabletops for 18 months. And uh, I think that some people loved that. Others of us fled back to our um, uh, relative gaming huts uh, with joy. But lots of people kept playing with lots of people. And again, that feeds the multinational quality of it because suddenly you're playing a game with someone in Malaysia or someone in, you know, Brazil or wherever. And now they're 
gaming style and their gaming interests are flowing into yours. And uh, I think the world coming up, we're going to need connections to one another and connections <laughs> across borders and across oceans. And uh, to do it in the field of role-playing is uh, all the sweeter. S is for story. We're drilling down, right? We went from role-playing games to story, right? The, the substrate under that art, as well as other lesser arts like cinema and television and literature. We got a lot of huts for those, the cinema hut, television hut. How to Write Good, the most annoying hut to throw, and I always have to throw it. <laughs> and the one you always have to throw because it's usually a, a, a Robin Forward subject. Well, it, it's as though one of us has written dozens of novels and one of us has written a handful of short stories. So right. which of us is the right good Howard? I, I've actually written, I think, dozen uh, dozen, novels, but also dozen? books about fiction writing and That's true. the structure of a story and so i feel like my larger point stands yes but I, I still feel i had to say that but at any rate the understanding of story i think is central to being a good game master i don't think even though we we're even more drowned in story than ever what with uh you know the the great profusion of streaming entertainment that you but, can put on but most at, of that story is moment. terrible robin it's just terrible right but i don't think people are any closer to understanding that analytically without people to help them and to, to give them tools and role playing gets you part of the way into that, but surprisingly little. And so I think it's always one of the reasons we talk about that stuff so much on the show is that a, we're interested in it, but B understanding how stories work, not just their beats, but their motifs, the uh, recurring archetypes, which of course are the stock and trade of uh, role playing that, uh, you know, cliche is bad supposedly, in other mediums, but in role-playing, cliches are a tool that you can use. It's an instant form of communication. It's a, it's a shorthand. And knowing how to put all those elements together into a compelling story rather than just looking at the surface of this is how blasters seem to work in Star Trek or, you know, this is how many literal miles the characters go in Lord of the Rings to what the creators of those works are doing and how they have that effect on you, I think is an important thing that we'll never run out of things to talk about. And the differences between being inside the story as you are in a role-playing game and outside it as you are in virtually every other art is... Uh, or if you're watching streaming. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> or if you're watching streaming. It's not a trivial difference. And I think your point about the cliche, you know, a cliche is bad from the outside, but from the inside, it's a life belt, right? You're You're clinging to it because, thank goodness, I can expect that I will swing on this curtain and stab that vizier. Good. I, I've got a direction. I'm going somewhere. And that sort of byplay is, I mean, any, any great uh, artist can take so-called cliches and make them new and vibrant and alive again. And we see that over and over and over again in other media. Right. Although the process of how that is done is mysterious and worthy of study. Exactly. But the best part about this art form about role-playing is that you can do that yourself. You can suddenly be Alfred Hitchcock. Or you can suddenly be Jordan Peele. You're, you're taking those uh, things that everyone thought were tired and you're breathing life into them and making them exciting. And if we help you do that, again, that's why we're here. T is for Time Machine. As already alluded to, I heard a Time Machine segment in the wild. This is part of this regular <laughs> uh, conversation that became part of the inspiration for the show. And it is one of the uh, three sort of anchor segments that usually uh, ends an episode. And the trick with a time machine segment, and sometimes we vary from this a bit, and you've been more a stickler of this at, uh, sometimes than others, is uh, ideally it should revolve not around just a historical figure 
that the comical, hard-drinking character of Ken goes and visits and talks to, although that's fun. But there has to be an alternate timeline in it, either an alternate timeline that Ken is thinking of creating or has seen someone else create, and he had to switch it back to have the timeline that we wanted. So the best Time Machine episodes are all about alternative history, which, of course, is another stream of speculative fiction and another stream of speculative fiction gaming. And it's the stream that got me into this as a business. At the University of Chicago, I fell in with uh, history majors, uh, always a mistake, and we used to do a thing at the Science Fiction Club. So, Science Fiction Club at the University of Chicago. So, already, this is levels of nerd that most people never achieve. But it gets better, because our version of the rap battle was the alternate history challenge where one of us would throw out any juncture and challenge the other ones to build from it. And then you'd exquisite corpse it and stop and say, then what happens? It's just appallingly nerdy what we did, but we did a lot of it. And uh, myself and Craig Newmeyer and Mike Schiffer did so much of it that we thought surely we can monetize this somehow. Steve Jackson games at that time had the request open. They still have the, what we want to see somewhere on their website. They had, we want to see, settings for GURPS time travel. And we said, what is an alternate history if not a setting for GURPS time travel? So we wrote up a bunch of them, sent them into Steve. There was a comical delay, but eventually Steve published them as GURPS alternate earths one and GURPS alternate earths two. And that, you know, alternate history riffing is sort of the, the core experience to me of what my nerdery is actually secretly about. And it's always great to have an excuse to do it on the show. T, however, in case you're hoping, uh, is not for Talpa, because Talpas are shy. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. You is for you, the beloved Patreon backer. Without Patreon backers, we would have closed up this podcast years ago uh, when it became apparent how much time it takes to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, we were in denial about that for many years. Uh, we sort of were writing this off as, well, it sort of pays off in terms of publicity for our games and, and stuff. But then we did the math, and we were really glad well, that Patreon existed. So I, I think technically James D'Amato did the math. <laughs> oh, I did the math a couple of years before James, I yeah. think. Well, we did not have a Patreon until James D'Amato looked me in the eye at, across a table and said, why are you not on Patreon? You people are leaving money on the table. Right. Well, there was a point where I did the math and went, I don't know if I should do this anymore. And then James had the answer. Yeah. So uh, this is a segment where, again, we thank... All of uh, you present and past backers, we know that money's getting tight right now. 
And uh, if people need to drop out for a little while, we uh, understand, we appreciate whatever time you're able to stay in. So even if you can, you know, pop in sometime and, you know, put in just a little bit that keeps it going for everybody and all the listeners. And uh, really, the show would not still be happening uh, without you. And we're going to continue to need support in order to have it continue to exist. Yes, yes it, it's, it's wild that both books and bourbon are not getting any cheaper. I don't understand it. Yes, uh, not to mention, like, you know, rent. <laughs> Wait, yeah, sure, rent. V is for Virgil. Virgil, of course, is the, uh, the king of cats. He is Ken's cat. We managed to sell shirts with <laughs> Virgil on them. Uh, not all of them to Ken. Or, or to Sheila. <laughs> or, or to Sheila. So, Ken, I wonder if uh, Virgil possibly would like to speak uh, on your behalf in this segment. Well, I mean, Virgil obviously has better things to do than go on a podcast or have anything to do with a podcast, but I'll see if he has any thoughts. W is for Waffles. The king of breakfasts, perhaps, but certainly one of the many things available in the food hut, which I think, Robin, I think we're both a little surprised at the maniacal popularity. More than a little surprised. Yeah. So it was it was John Kavalik, who is a sponsor emeritus because he uh, drew our uh, cartoon faces that you see on the website and the first of the many icons that later came to represent the various huts. And as his payment, we said, okay, well, you can give us a topic for a segment. And he actually gave us a whole segment, which was food hot. He wanted to hear us talk about food. And we thought, okay, we'll humor John. Everyone will say, never do that again. And we'll yeah, do it once. That was terrible. Why would you do that? Yet, weirdly, it is one of the most popular segments. And one where if I'm going through a period where I'm not doing very much exploring of new cooking and food or restaurants, see, you know, last 18 to 24 <laughs> months, I feel a little guilty. It's like, I'm not thinking, you know, Valerie's not complaining, but what about the listeners? So Yeah, I mean, obviously, both Robin and I uh, enjoy eating, and I feel like the sticky toffee pudding at uh, Simon's house is one of the, you know, secret catalysts of this podcast. Certainly, our enjoyment of, you know, uh, postprandial wine and cheese leads to airy speculation about time machines. And we both cook for our wives. I started cooking around 2003, 2004, sort of the high uh, Alton Brown era. Well, all my male friends all sort of also got into it because it was like, oh, this is engineering, but you can eat it. And then suddenly we were there. And then I realized that Sheila really likes it when I cook. And it's like, well, if I can put off being murdered just for, you know, another week by cooking dinner, that seems like a pretty straight deal. And, you know, it's, it's, it's super enjoyable. It's great fun for me. Cooking is, you know, like everything, it's all about the research. So you can dig around and, and read up on the food and you can find crazy recipes and fun recipes and recipes by, you know, noted and genius cooks that disagree virulently and have all kind of, of great fun. So it's, it's research, it's engineering, and it keeps me uh, unmurdered. What, what more can you say about cooking than that? Yeah, I started cooking in the early nineties when Valerie and I first moved in together. We had a very, very tiny apartment that we lived in for many years and the kitchen was the smallest, uh, well, it wasn't literally the smallest, but it was the, the smallest area that you, you know, live in. And I started cooking on my own when I discovered that I wanted to cook by myself with Valerie out of the way in the other room, carry on a conversation, whereas Valerie wanted me doing things for her as her assistant, like chopping onions and stuff in that tiny space. 
So it was very clever of her to get me to just, no, just get out. I'll do everything. That's how that uh, came about. X is for Shiokotl, who, of course, is the turquoise fire serpent of Aztec mythology. Comes up all the time on the show. Oh, oh, actually, no. It's our synecdoche for Monster Hut and Mythology Hut, because what is role-playing without uh, mythology to create a, a rich and exciting world for our uh, characters to explore and monsters for them to hit with swords and maces? And I feel like both of those huts are huts that could easily step up to become alpha huts. They're somewhere between second and third tier huts just from the numbers, but I feel like it's one of those, you know, deep, deep veins of ore that we could be drawing stuff out of forever. There are, in fact, whole podcasts on uh, just monsters, and I assume whole podcasts on just mythology. So it's one of those where, worst case scenario, we can have more monsters, I guess, is one of my point. The other question that I had, Robin, is, is Geocoatl the king of the fire salamanders? Is that whose portrait we've been hanging in the hallway of the consulting occultist all this time? I think they must be pals, but a salamander is an amphibian, not a serpent. Right. And so um, I'm sure they're probably like they serve on a board together. Right. Yeah. They're, they, they meet at like the Met Gala for monsters. Yes. Right. Uh, is is also the other form of another Aztec god with a difficult to pronounce name. And I think Gio the king of the fire salamanders specifically is a, a wizard or familiar or, 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 or daemon. All right. Well, I'm glad that we cleared that up. That's what people really want to know. Yeah, I, I I feel like the King of the Fire Salamanders sort of just showed up one day and, you know, acted like he owned the place. In in a way, he's right. sort of like Virgil. Well, he set the portrait of Madame Blavatsky on fire. Yeah, well, once what you are you going to do? Normally, he's, I don't like when people destroy things, but when you destroy things and then provide an alternative, how can yeah, you argue? That also, seems pretty great. fire powers. Yeah, we do not want to anger the King of the Fire Salamanders. Trust us. Y is for Yellow King. And I know everyone was waiting for this. Uh, where is C for Carcosa? What's going wrong? But yeah, uh, Yellow King is, I feel like, Robin, it's a game that um, you like to uh, make fun of me and say that Bookhounds of London is the book I was born to write for the game I was born to write. I feel like Yellow How King. I making fun of you. <laughs> yeah, well, accurate description and making fun of our, our, at the very least, kissing cousins. I feel like Yellow King is very much a game that you put a lot of yourself into and when you proposed it, when you said, let's, I want to do a game about Robert W. Chambers's five and a half stories, I think my reaction, like the reaction of many people, was, really? Actually, <laughs> I didn't propose it. I wrote the book of original short stories, New Tales of the Yellow Sign, because I was fascinated by the potential in the Chambers mythos, but I was not thinking about it as a role-playing game. It did, however, inspire me to write a standalone scenario for Trail based on the repair of reputations, where you sort of play that story out. And mm -hmm. with the success of that and enjoying the book, Kat and Simon then asked me to do The Yellow King. So if I had pitched it myself, I would have pitched a much less ambitious version and, in fact, didn't think to pitch it at all. <laughs> and I think often the things that most express something about you are often the ones where someone else says, hey, you should do this because they may have a better idea of what you should do than you do. Because that seems like a Robin thing. But like Night's Black Agents, not only in my case is this my most recent big game, but it's something that lends itself to countless segments, because it happens in three time periods, two realities, arguably four different genres, certainly four different subgenres. And so between all of those things, it's just as easy to rope 
the king in yellow into something in Carcosa uh, as it is to bring in, you know, Cthulhu and Ryla. Yeah, you know, certainly before and absolutely after I did the annotated king in yellow for Arc Dream, I recognized the power of the Carcosa mythos or the yellow mythos or whatever you want to call it. And the interesting thing, I think, for me, or one of the interesting things about it is the differences that it does have to Cthulhu, that there's sort of a, a lazy shorthand where you could put one universal joint and it can hold Cthulhu or Carcosa. But I think what's super fun and super interesting is the ways that while they are complementary, they are not the same. And you do get better results with one versus the other. And some things do vibe more with Carcosa than they do with Cthulhu, even though you'd think, as as Lovecraft thought, that they were basically uh, feeders to the same river. And that's one of the interesting things. Right. And, and even though Chambers predates Lovecraft, his reality horror theme, the fear of uh, limitless subjectivity, is sort of more part of the zeitgeist in this moment we're in now than the existential dread by someone who hated existentialism <laughs> that is in Lovecraft, which I think, you know, had its cultural apotheosis between, you know, the 40s and, and 50s and into the 60s and then uh, had the revival with Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I don't want to live in Lovecraft's world or Chambers' world, but I, I think we're closer to Chambers's. And at, at least uh, there's girls in Chambers' world, so that's better. That's far superior. And finally, Zed is for the difference between Canada and America. Ken, this is our basic bit of a comedy shtick, the Canadian and the American, and there's even a mythology developed uh, with uh, the good old Magic Beaver, the yeah. patron entity of, of Canada who helped bring about peace, order, and good government. And I would recommend that whenever America wants to have those three things, I would recommend them. Well, you know, we take and leave, right? It's same with hockey. America values hockey, but we're not about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's good to have Canada. I, I, you know, people will say, Ken, you're a monstrous jingoist. You're a, a horrific Yankee doodle dandy flag waver. And I say, true, guilty as charged. But part of being America is having Canada at our back, on our side to our north, however you want to put it. Batman is not Batman without Robin. Captain America is not Captain America without Bucky. America is not America without Canada. Canada is a true and wonderful partner. It's great to visit. I've enjoyed all my time in Canada, all, all the bits, not just Robin's apartment, but, you know, Quebec, the most uh, ridiculous part of Canada. Love it. I, I have nothing but good things to say about Canada. Canada is easily, easily, Robin, my second favorite country. Right. And lots of Americans uh, make fun of Canada, and lots of them make fun of poutine, but you know better than that. Oh, poutine is so good. It's it's actually, you know, this is when you say, shouldn't Canada have been conquered by, you know, General Montgomery in 1775 and be under the stars and stripes? I say, you'd think that. But God has sent poutine to demonstrate that that's not true. Because there are a million American restaurants that make something they call poutine, and they always screw it up. Possibly similarly to peace, order, and good government. You know, it's it's peace, order, and good government, but with duck. And it's like, well, good. I like all those things, but maybe just gravy and fries and uh, and curds. Maybe maybe try that. Maybe try not screwing the basics up once. But uh, poutine in, in uh, poutine is magnificent. Uh, maple syrup is great, although of course Vermont maple syrup is 
you know, we got our own maple syrup. I, I don't think they're chemically different. Right. Uh, well, anyway, let's let's just, I, I want to stop on the part where you're praising poutine, because that could not be a better 10th year anniversary present to me. So, Ken, you're going to go off and enjoy Gen Con, and uh, we're going to uh, try and see if we re- record a Gen Con episode where I'm in Toronto and you're in a hotel room. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. There will uh, still be a Ken and Robin live, except I won't be quite as live. I might make a little cameo and there'll be a guest host to uh, carry most of my water for me. But uh, I just want to f- actually really finish off by thanking you, the listener, for sticking around, whether you've done it for three episodes or all 508, all, all 10 years of us. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you listening and I hope you'll uh, continue to tolerate our nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Whether you want to hear about Aaron's beard or these Zwickau prophets, gain the question-asking powers enjoyed by such inquiring backers as... Ruth Tillman. Steve Sigety. Tristan Knight. Joe Webb. And Roger Edge. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Don our rhinorific latest design, Unicorn with a Better Armor class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.